Well, my name is Adrian, and I'm one of the pastors here at Carnegie Free, and uh, welcome. Thanks so much for being here on this cold day. You guys can cuddle up. Go ahead. No, seeing no takers. All right. Uh, great to be together, though it's cold outside, so glad to be together in this room. Welcome to all those watching online. Maybe you weren't able to come out today, and you're watching at CarneyEFree.com. We welcome you there also, and everyone in the venue. Thanks for joining us in the venue today. We are in this series called God's Name, where we're looking at this place in Exodus chapter 34, where God reveals to us his name and his character. And I'd invite you to turn with me to Exodus 34 right now. If you follow along on your phone or in your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, you can pick up a Bible at our exits or at our welcome table as well. But we open up the Bible each and every week here at Carnegie Free. And today, well, we're going to be in Exodus 34 and then jump around to a handful of other passages that help us with God's name as well. Whatever you list first will tend to be what is most important to you. Right? And this is true with God. What God lists first tends to be what is most important to him. We have a God of order, and the Bible writers orient their thinking in a very orderly manner such that when they list values or priorities or commandments, you want to pay close attention to the order they keep. Because like us, whatever God lists first tends to be most important to him. And so we're looking at this self-revelation of God out of Exodus 34, in which again he gives his name and his characteristics, and it's this beautiful description of who God is, such a powerful passage for the Hebrew people across the Old Testament and for Christians into the New Testament as well. So powerful, in fact, that this verse that we've been looking at in Exodus chapter 34 is quoted literally dozens of times in your Bible. And as we've noted, this is God's self-description. He's called Moses up to Mount Sinai to receive the second copy of the Ten Commandments. And as Moses is begging God to give him his presence, God, please give me your presence, and God, please show me your glory, God calls him up to Mount Sinai, and he gives him the Ten Commandments again. We're going to pick up the story there and read this key passage that we've looked at a number of times. Read it well once again, though, this morning. I encourage you to imagine yourself with Moses here on Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 7. Just imagine you're there, and you're getting to see, you're getting to hear God's name. You're getting to hear a description of what he's like. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write them, I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. <laughs> Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or to be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two 
stone tablets like the first ones, and he went up on Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud, and he stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, here it is, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, in the Hebrew, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining his love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now remember, we mentioned this in the first week of the series. It's easy to listen to that final line and kind of get freaked out by this passage. Please don't do that. Okay? That final line, he punishes the children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. As you unpack it in context, you're going to see that it's consistent well with the rest of God's character though, that you find throughout that passage. And even there, there are some beautiful notes of mercy. Okay, we'll get to that in a couple weeks, so don't lose me but based on that final line. But again, this is God's self-revelation of his name and his character. Please talk in church with me for just a moment. What's the first word that is used after God gives his name? What's the first word that he uses to describe his character? Anybody? Compassion. The first attribute that God uses to describe his character is compassion. What's the second word that God uses, the second attribute that God uses to describe his character? Gracious. First word, compassion. Second word, gracious. Friends, this is so fascinating to me. When you're introducing yourself to someone and you begin well with your bio, what you instinctively do is you list out the things that are most important to you. And so if someone asks me about my life, asks me what's important to me, asks me a little bit about my bio, I am not going to lead with my love for fried chicken. (laughs) Though I have a remarkable love for fried chicken, I really do, but I'm not going to lead with that. I'm going to lead with My wife, Susie, of 18 years, and two amazing sons. Because that's what's most near and dear to me. We all instinctively do that. We lead with what is most near and dear to us. And when God introduces himself, he doesn't talk about how powerful he is. That's not where he starts. He doesn't start with how all-knowing he is, how eternal he is, what a truth teller he is, how omniscient he is. All those things are true about God, but where does he start? He starts with his compassion, and then he moves to his graciousness. I want to just ask you, are those the characteristics that come to your mind first when you think of Yahweh God? Compassion and grace. Or how about, well, when you think of Jesus? Are those the first words that come to your mind, well, when you think of Jesus? I love when the Apostle John is given a little biography of Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 14. 
he describes Jesus and he does it this way. He says, the word, and the word means Jesus, okay? The word spoke the universe into existence. This is a word for Jesus, it's a word for God. The word became flesh and blood and he made his dwelling amongst us. He took on flesh and blood, became God in flesh in Jesus, pitched a tent and dwelt well within the neighborhood. We have seen his glory, the only glory the one and only who came from the Father, and he came full of, full of grace and truth. What's listed first? In other words, if you want to correct someone, first you better connect with someone, right? They better experience grace from you if they're gonna experience any truth from you. Ooh, that can preach. You gotta connect first with grace before you correct second with truth. Now, I have to admit that when I first became a Christian, the first thing, though, that came to my mind about God was not grace. The things, though, that were in my mind about God as I started to explore Christianity and to try to understand it compared to a number of different religions of the world, and I try to deal well with my own sinfulness, though, that I realized what was a really, really big deal in college. The first thing that came to my mind was not God's compassion or his graciousness. The thing that I was wrestling with was fear over the depravity of my sin, that I was so deep in sinfulness, and I couldn't dig myself out, and I had this huge fear of God because of that. And I also had a big picture of God as a truth teller. And of course he's a truth teller, and of course he's one to, to be feared. But I had this in my mind for so long, it was difficult for quite a number of years for me to get my mind and my heart around this beautiful word called grace. And so for a long, long time, I had a faulty image of God because it was so wrapped around fear Instead of understanding God's loving heart to me, his grace to me, which ultimately, of course, forgave me of all of my sins. Now, grace in the Hebrew is this word hanum. Say that with me, hanum. Hanum. And hanum in the Hebrew means to show unmerited favor. You hear that? Unmerited favor. It's to look out upon another and say, I bless you though you have not merited it in any way. It's undeserved blessings, unmerited favor from one upon another, no strings attached. That's hanum. In the Greek, which the New Testament is written in, Old Testament is written in what? Hebrew. New Testament is written in? In Greek, okay? In the New Testament, in Greek, it's charis. And the word charis means to unilaterally give to another. It's to treat someone better than they deserve. Ooh, that's so good. That God comes to us and he treats us, somebody, better than we deserve. Ain't that good? To know that you are treated better than you deserve, that you deserved punishment for your sin, and God chooses not to give you punishment for your sin. Instead, he puts that punishment on Jesus such that you would forever be forgiven for all of your sins as you trust in him. 
Now, what I've said before, probably dozens of times in this, wor- in this room, and I pray that you would understand this, you got to understand this in, in, in our increasingly pluralistic world, in our increasingly pluralistic community. There's all kinds of new religions in our community as well, and our kids are dealing with it all the time. Friends, you must understand that the most distinctive, characteristic word of Christianity is grace. It is the doctrine of Christianity through which every doctrine falls. Every other one comes after God's grace. It begins with this. God comes to you and he bestows unmerited favor upon you. Okay, he treats you better than you deserve. And this distinguishes Christianity from Buddhism or Hinduism or Judaism or Islam or manifest destiny, or the typical ways that all of us were probably raised. With God, it begins with the doctrine of grace. Now listen to compassion and grace through God's Father heart for us, and I dare say even, I hope you have faith to hear this, his mother-like heart for us. Now God is a Father, But he describes himself on a number of different occasions as having a mother-like heart for us as well, his children. Listen to this from Isaiah 49, 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? It's a rhetorical question as if to say, no, of course not. But then Isaiah goes on, even if she may forget... I, the Lord your God, will not forget you. Amen? Wow. This is the mother-like heart of God. Or how about this? Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. What's he quoting there? What's King David quoting there? Exodus 34. Okay, he's quoting that same passage that we've been talking about these past weeks. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And hear this, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who rightly fear him. Is this the way you think of God? That God has this heart that's like a mother with her child to her chest holding that child in love that is a father like heart who's compassionate to his children forgiving their transgressions so gracious to them that as far as the east is from the west that's how far he is Remove their transgressions such that he doesn't even look at their transgressions. He chooses not to look at them after he forgives them. Friends, it took me a number of years, but before I started to know God that way, that God is compassionate to me, that God is gracious to me that way, that he removes my transgressions. But as I did some of the unhealthy fear that I continued to hold about God, the kind of fear that says, oh, I know that you've forgiven me, God, but I just can't believe that you've forgiven me, so I'm so scared of you. Anybody else? Oh, man, that'll do a number on you. And I was in that for several years. 
And so I'd ask for forgiveness for the same sins again and again and again because I just couldn't believe that God was gracious enough to forgive me the first time. It took me years to believe that he was gracious enough to forgive. And as I did, some of that fear and some of my self-protective pride slowly but surely started to melt away. I just want to ask this question, could it be that God's character toward us begins with compassion and grace? Like if this is his character, could it be that his character toward you begins with compassion and grace. Now I know the portrait there from Isaiah 49 and from Psalm 103 is quite foreign to many of us in this room. It, it doesn't even really compute that, that a mother and father would love this way, a mother and father would be compassionate this way as described in these passages. And perhaps maybe that's because you had an overbearing dad who just kind of grinded on you all the time. Or maybe it was the experience, though, that you had a mother that was perfectionistic and you just never could measure up. No matter what you did, you just never felt like it was enough. Or maybe you were raised in a home in which parents and grandparents just basically never affirmed you. They never blessed you, as we just talked about, or as we just sang about, in the blessing. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep. There, just, there wasn't this favor. There wasn't this blessing. Or maybe you're raised in a home you just kind of felt invisible on a regular basis. And I'm not trying to do parent bashing, bashing here. Please hear me. I'm a parent. Okay, there are no perfect parents. And we didn't have any perfect parents. And we're not perfect parents either. I'm not doing any of that. But the simple fact is, though, the way we were raised makes it very difficult at times to imagine God as he actually is. And it can be very difficult for us to have a proper view of what good authority really looks like, that we would both stand in awe before God and also know that we are utterly loved and God is totally gracious and totally compassionate to us. And what happens is, unfortunately, we develop some of this inferiority complex around authority. And we think that we cannot stand and so that's why we have to meditate on and get these ideas from Exodus 34 deep in our hearts. I encourage you to memorize this passage. I encourage you to meditate on this passage often. That we would understand God's good character to us. These first attributes of God, he's compassionate and gracious, are so important for us to know about him. Our God is a God who sees our struggles he sees our fears, he sees our weaknesses, and he's not too busy. He ain't distracted by his phone. He sees you. He sees you. This is what we've been talking about in Exodus 3 as well. As Israel, as the Hebrews are in slavery, what does God say? I have indeed seen, I've seen the misery of my people. I've heard their cry for help because of their oppressors. And I'm concerned about it. 
And so I'm coming down to help them. Compassion is a feeling word. Compassion describes God's feeling towards you. You can even say that because of Christ, we are told in the scriptures that God knows how to sympathize with you in your weaknesses. He knows how to sympathize with you in your experience of rejection or pain because Jesus went through so much more rejection and pain than we will ever go through. You could even say he knows how to empathize with us in our rejection and our pain. But it doesn't stop there. Compassion extends to grace. So compassion is kind of a feeling word. Grace is more of an action word. And God in his grace, because of his compassion, in his grace, he moves toward us with grace and he acts on our behalf. He treats us better than we deserve. Like a good parent does with his children, so he comes to us in our need and he offers his help. I love the way Jordan Pub put it, that, put it last week. He said, great, great message from Pastor Jordan last week on the compassion of God. He said, God is compassionate. And so the question for us is, who does God want me to obey him in being compassionate to this week? Where is God calling me to obey him by being compassionate this week? How'd you do with that last week? Did you apply that one? Seeing no hands, we have another week. Okay, <laughs> each and every week, well, we got another week to obey him, and who is it that you want me to be compassionate to this week? I bet some of those in the Exodus wondered during this time, how can God say that he is compassionate and gracious when we've spent all of these years in slavery? You ever thought about that? I bet some of them thought about that. And I've thought about that before as well. How can God say, how can he list out of the beginning of his characteristics that he is compassionate and gracious when they've spent all of these years in back-breaking slavery? But if you remember back in the story to Joseph in Genesis, remember the Bible was one cohesive whole. And after, before uh, Exodus was Genesis. And back in the story of Genesis, at the end of Genesis, you, know, you have this man named Joseph. And why is he in Egypt? Anyone know? He's in Egypt to save the Hebrew people. That's the only reason, though, that he's there. And so there's this great famine in the land of Canaan. And so God takes Joseph out, brings him to Egypt, so that the people of Joseph... Jacob and all of Joseph's brothers and all of those that would follow all the way down to Moses would be saved because if they were still back in the land of Canaan, they'd be dead. And there would be nothing to the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. So it was an act of God's grace in the very first place to put them in Egypt. Ooh. Or in the New Testament, maybe you think about the Apostle Paul. You know, Paul had some kind of ailment. We don't know just what it was, but he had some kind of ailment. It was a sickness or a limp or some kind of medical condition. We're not told precisely what it, what it was, but it was a big enough deal that he asked God again and again and again to take it away. In 2 Corinthians 12, you might know that he, he asked God three times. It was probably much more than three times. Three times is a perfect number. It means he asked him again and again and again to take it away. And 
God said no. To which you might say, well, that's not very compassionate of you, God. That's not too gracious of you. God says, no. I'm not going to take it away from you, Paul, but I'm going to do something better than taking it away. I'm going to give you an extra measure of, your, of my grace. I'm going to give you my grace to endure this suffering that you're going to have to keep going through. I'm not going to remove your suffering. I'm going to give you my grace so that you would endure this suffering. And in time, Paul learned that that grace was a gift from God, even though God didn't give him precisely what he wanted. And then he responded with, God, your grace is sufficient for me. Your power is made perfect in my weakness. And so when I am weak, I will boast all the more that God is strong through my weakness. Can you say that? Can you say that in the midst of your suffering, that God's grace is able to shine in the midst of your weakness? This is a compassionate God who's gracious to us even when we're not getting well what we like. God's grace is rich to us when we're prosperous. And God's grace, I pray you believe today, is rich to us when we're impoverished. It is. God's grace was rich on the Hebrews in Egypt. They were impoverished. God's grace is rich to us when we're healthy. And God's grace is rich to us when we're ill. Many old saints, many older Christians simply understand that God is graciously refining me when things are not going well. He's graciously blessing me when it seems like things are going well, but he's graciously refining me when things don't seem like they're going well. Do we think about our sufferings that way? That perhaps in the midst of the suffering, he is graciously refining something that needs to be refined in me. Really, the crux of the matter comes down to this. How do you approach God in prayer? How do you think about God as it relates to your sufferings and then you come to him in prayer? And it strikes me there's two different ways though that we can approach God. One way that we approach God that's not accurate well with his grace is based on what I've done. Someone might still come and pray to God, but the way they pray to God, truthfully the way they, they come to God is based on the things that I do, based on the things that I bring to the table. So, in my life, for example, a couple months ago, I went into the doctor to get some blood work done. And a few days later, after getting that blood work done, I have an excellent nurse who called me to talk about the blood work, and he said, Adrian, I'm concerned about your cholesterol. He said, you seem to have borderline high cholesterol, and it looks like it's been going up a bit for the past couple years, and I think you either need to Make a relationship with a cardiologist or you need to make some modifications. And I'm telling you, the way I reacted to that news over the next couple, couple days was like someone had killed someone that I love. I went into pity party mode and I'm embarrassed to say that my prayers to God over the next couple days after hearing that went something like this. God, I work so hard. And God, I work out really hard. And God, I take good care of my body. I eat well, except for fried chicken <laughs> and buttery croissants. 
Well, we'll stop there. I eat well for the most part. And I'm trying, God, I'm trying to limit my stress. I'm trying to manage my stress better. God, why is this happening to me? Don't you see all these things that I'm doing? Pity party, playing the victim, weak stuff. So often we can do this, right? We can approach God with this expectation that he will bless us on the basis of what we do. But that ain't right. That's not the way it works with a gracious God. And that's not about grace. What that's about is what I do. What if God wants to bless us instead through the instrument of suffering or submission or sacrifice of some things that I really like? What if he wants to bless me through learning more discipline and gaining more by sacrificing some of the comforts that I am used to living with all the time? Now the second way that we would approach God is this, not on the basis of what I do, not on the basis of what we achieve, not on the basis of all the things that we do well, but based on God's grace and compassion. And friends, when you approach approach God on the basis of his grace and compassion, on the basis of his mercy, it doesn't sound like the pity party that I had. It sounds more like this, God, you are gracious. You are compassionate. You have treated me better than I deserve. You have mercifully withheld punishment from me that I deserve. You have given me the Holy Spirit who now lives in me. You knew me before I was even born. You promised me that you will never leave me or forsake me. You are patient with me when I am weak. You have forgiven me of all of my sins through Jesus Christ on the cross. And yes, I'm dealing with this cholesterol issue right now. And so I'm asking you, God, would you please help me? I'm asking you, God, would you give me some more discipline in these areas? I'm asking you, God, would you refine me as I have to sacrifice some of the things that I like? And whatever happens, God, I trust you. Because it's from you. All things are from you and for you and to you. And to you alone deserves all glory. I trust you. Do you hear the difference there? And I didn't go there immediately. I'm not the heroic one in this story. God is the heroic one, okay? I still got a lot of work to do here. Where I went to first was this pity party based on what I've done. And then I had to be reminded of the way things work, which is God's grace first, his unilateral work toward us, and then we approach him on the basis of who he is and all that he does. You see, friends, when we come to God with empty hands, then our hands can be filled with God's grace, with his mercy, And then he plucks us off the wide road that leads to destruction. And he places us once again on that narrow road that leads to paradise. If we come to him with our hands full of all the things that we do, we are no different than any other hell-bound, worldly sinner. We're not. You can't come to God with all the things that you do. They're... They're meaningless before him. You come to him with all that he does. You come to him with empty hands. And then you allow him to fill grace and mercy and compassion into your hands. And then you live out. You live good out. Okay, you operate with 
kindness and grace and compassion and goodness fought for the world out of God's grace and his mercy and his compassion, not for God's grace and mercy and compassion. Here's the big idea that you gotta take away this morning. I've, I've already hit on it a number of times, but I really hope though that you understand this. God's character starts with compassion and grace, and therefore, his character toward you starts with compassion and grace. If he lists first in his character compassion and grace, then we can trust his character toward us begins with compassion and grace. Let me show you just one more example from the New Testament of a man coming to Jesus with very little in his hands and experiencing Jesus' compassion and grace. It comes out of the book of Mark, chapter 9, and you'll probably remember the, the story. There's this dad, and he's got a son, and his son has seizures, and his son is filled with a violent spirit of some kind. It's an evil spirit. And this evil spirit grabs at the son and throws him around violently. And at times he gets thrown into fire or into water. And you might say, I'm a modern person and I don't believe in evil spirits. But I'm telling you, I used to work in a group home. And I've seen evil spirits. And regardless of how modern you are, Jesus says there's evil spirits and I'm going with Jesus. He says there's evil spirits, and I think I've seen evil spirits out there. And this man, this father, he comes with his boy to Jesus, and he's begging Jesus for help. You pick up the story there in Mark 9, verse 21. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? How long has he been in this very difficult situation? From childhood, the dad answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or into the water to kill him. But if you can do anything... Jesus, if you can do anything, would you please take pity on us and help us? Can you hear his heart? If you could do anything, would you please help us? If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe Would you help me overcome my unbelief? (laughs) I do believe. Would you help me overcome my unbelief? And Jesus does just that. And he rebukes the spirit, and the boy is healed. And it's a beautiful story. But the thing I want you to notice is, what did the dad bring to Jesus? Nothing. 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 He brought empty hands. In fact, he dropped his fear. He had to drop his fear out of his hands that I can go before Yahweh. I can go before the God in flesh. He dropped his fear out of his hands and he brings like a mustard seed of faith. Put that verse back up on the screen. He brings this mustard seed of faith. And I want you to notice what he says. Jesus says, do you believe? And he says, uh, kind of. Not much. He says, I, I believe, but really, would you please help me overcome my unbelief? And Jesus receives that because he comes with empty hands. 
And this is the lesson for us, that we would come with empty hands before God, that he would put his grace into our hands, and that would motivate us for all of life. Now, you, you, you might just say, well, I know God's given me his grace on the cross. I know he's forgiven me of my sins, but where else has God given me grace? If that's you, here's an application, though, this week. List out everything in your life that you have that is good that you did not earn. There's an application. Take an hour, take 30 minutes to list out everything that you have that you did not earn, and that's God's grace. That's God's grace to you. So you think of your parents or your grandparents, you think of your siblings, you think about blood going through your heart, you think about air in your lungs, you think about the fact that you now have the Holy Spirit in you through faith in Jesus Christ, you think about the fact that God says he knew you before you were even formed. You think about the fact that God says he will never leave you or forsake you, that you have this church, you didn't earn this church, that you have a community of people, you have some friends, all these different things that you say, I did not earn, and as you list those out, what will naturally happen is you'll fall to your knees in thanksgiving to God. And this is the kind of activity that we want to do on a regular basis because sometimes Christians only think about the grace of God as coming from the cross and certainly that's the most beautiful, most miraculous, most powerful demonstration of grace ever given. But God in his character is grace. When he gives us snow, it's grace for our land, right? When he gives us rain, it's grace. I dare say... If God has brought suffering into your life, you want to begin to ask, God, what are you graciously trying to do in me? How are you trying to refine me? How do I need to submit to you more? Where is it that I need to learn through this suffering? Because you are gracious and compassionate. And on the basis of that, we would then approach God's grace, approach his throne with boldness. I'll wrap up here with one verse and one question. Hebrews 4.16 says this, because of who God is, because Jesus is our intercessor, the great mediator between us and God, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Let us then approach God's throne with confidence not weakly, not timidly, but with confidence that we may receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. You can always approach God's throne with your hands empty and you will always receive grace and mercy to help you in your time of need. You go to him with confidence because of who Jesus is and because of how God has revealed himself to us. So the question I want to close with here, but before I pray, is this. Do you honestly see God as your good, good father? Do you honestly see God as compassionate and gracious to you? That above all else, regardless of what you experienced in your family of origin, that God is compassionate, that God is gracious, that God is merciful to you, that the starting point of 
his posture to you is grace. That he's a good father that can be trusted. Is that how you see God? And if you do, I'm just telling you, you're going to trust him more and more, and you will approach his throne with more and more confidence to ask for your needs in your time of need. Let's pray to him now. Father, we want to just sit on that question for a moment together as a church family and perhaps even confess to you for a moment today that some of us have distorted portraits of God and we don't honestly believe that our God is a compassionate and gracious Father. Many of us just see him as a judge. Many of us mostly see him as being angry with us even after we've been forgiven. And so we just want to sit on that file for a moment. What is your portrait of God? And do you know the Father is the one who is compassionate and gracious to you right now? Father, would you begin to reform our thinking of you? Would you begin to heal us and change the way we think about you. That we would be formed by your self-revelation, not by our projections onto you. That we would receive your grace, and then we would give your grace to others. We would receive your compassion, and then we would give your compassion to others. And maybe today you've never actually received the grace of God. And if that's you, it begins simply by saying, Lord Jesus, I admit that I am a sinner in need of your grace, in need of your forgiveness. And I believe, Lord Jesus, that you died for my sins and you rose again. And I confess, Lord Jesus, that I will follow you. Just those three simple steps, I admit my sin. I believe, Lord Jesus, that you died and you rose again. And I confess I will follow you. If you want to make that decision today, you can do that right where you're sitting. And God will pour his grace upon you. We thank you, Lord, that you love us right where we are. We're so grateful, God, that you've showered your grace upon us. We sing to you now with thanksgiving and hope. In Jesus' name.